The Democrats have finished up, which means the bottom of the inning belongs to the Trump train. And we are going to cover every second of it on our Twitch channel, twitch.tv slash Justin R. Young. It was so amazing seeing so many of you guys there over the last week. I'm pulling double duty. I'm doing all the podcasts, all the live streams, and it's all for you. Twitch.tv slash Justin R. Young. Join us in the smoky back room, breaking down all the speakers, all of the optics, all of the strategy. If you were just watching network news or on Twitter, you thought that AOC pulled a mutiny. Not if you were watching with us. Come on. It's where the smart kids are. Twitch.tv slash Justin R. Young. If uh, you get the Twitch app, it's on Apple TV. It's on iOS. It's on Android. You can watch it there. Moreover, you can listen audio only if you want. You're just walking around the house. You just want to be a part of it. Just head on over to Twitch.tv, either on app or on browser, and follow Justin R. Young. See you there for every second of the Republican National Convention. The following is brought to you by Andy Beach, Nick Wood, Paul Boyer, Michael Bolick, and Will Harris. Gentlemen, and welcome to the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast. My name is Justin Robert Young, joining you yet again here in Oakland, California. We are in the midst of the Republican National Convention. Two nights in the books. I will break down my overall thoughts. We also have a trend that I've noticed during the RNC that I'm going to go on a much deeper dive into. And, uh... There's a lot of black people at this RNC. Like, I've been watching conventions for a little while now. I don't ever remember a Republican National Convention that has spent so much time talking to black voters. It's... Interesting. I it just we'll go we'll go into it. We also have a great interview a little bit later about the idea of economic thinking. Something that normally dominates the Republican National Convention. We always talk about things in economic terms whenever you're talking with the conservatives. But how economic thinking spread beyond the world of economics and into politics, culture, and more. But first, America, land of promise, land of opportunity, land of heroes, land of greatness. Join us over the next four nights as we write the next chapter of our journey and share our vision as the greatest country with the greatest citizens 
that attain the greatest achievements. Ah, the RNC. Well, uh, <laughs> you know, we certainly got a lot more American flags. Uh, not to say that the uh, Democratic National Convention was lacking in American flags, but good golly, did we have a lot more. I don't know if there is a, a square. I don't know if there is a frame of footage in any of this RNC where there is not an American flag visible. So let's start with the technical stuff. We, we heard from a report by Axios over the weekend that Donald Trump hated two things about the DNC. He hated how long the speeches went, and he hated the Zoom aesthetic. He did not like the crunchy audio. He did not like the, the video compression. He did not want it to look like a teleconference convention. It doesn't look like a teleconference convention. And boy, golly, are these speeches short. The first night featured 23 speakers, if you count the gun couple from St. Louis as, as two. And they were running these people on and off the stage like it was a hockey game. Just fire wagon changes. Boom, get off. Kimberly Guilfoyle, get on. A lady whose espresso company was rescued by a PPP loan. Uh, you get off. Uh, uh, you get on. Dr. G. Golly. For real. There's a Dr. G. Golly. I thought he gave a pretty good speech. You get off. You get on. Maximo, the Cuban exile. Get on. Very, 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 very quick. Night one. I thought it was a little head spinning, a little jarring. What night one did offer, though, are the two sides, as Ryan Lizza called it in Politico, the battle for the future of the GOP. Because you got two speakers that were very Trump without the experience of being a showman. Whatever you'll say about Trump, he knows how to read a crowd. So if you separate the bombast from the showman's guile, what you get is some version of Donald Trump Jr. and Kimberly Guilfoyle. It was red hot. Guilfoyle may have gone a little uh, over the edge to, uh, you know, Rita Repulsa saying that after a thousand years, she's free to conquer the earth. You know, the, the outstretched hands... <laughs> As if she's channeling the lightning down from the heavens above. A little dramatic. A little dramatic. I probably would have played a little bit differently in front of 19,000 people, but alone in an auditorium was a little hot. I, look, I got on the Democratic speakers for not being able to fire up, for not being able to, to channel and summon some of that energy. My word, did the Republicans get that note and might have overcorrected. Donald Trump Jr., I thought, and I have not seen a lot of Donald Trump Jr.'s speeches, but he's going to be somebody that will run for office at some point. I don't know what office it is. I don't know if it's going to be the presidency. I don't know if it's going to be a governorship. I don't know if it's going to be in the Senate. He's going to run for office. He raises too much money, and he, he does have a beat on politics. 
He had one very good line, I thought, uh, considering one of the themes here, the undercurrent throughout the first two nights, was that whatever you have been told, question it when it comes to the media. The media is locked in groupthink. The media pushes a narrative. The media is silencing voices that would dare question it. They are ruining lives for the sake of their own agenda. I thought a nice way to sum that up, considering the the previous uh, concepts that they've laid down was a Donald Trump line that the silent majority will become the silenced majority. I thought that was I thought that was eloquent. Now he also put it in a speech next to Joe Biden is the Loch Ness monster of the swamp, <laughs> for which I would only assume that all of his appropriations bills would simply ask for tree fitting. But you could contrast that with Nikki Haley and Tim Scott. Nikki Haley and Tim Scott are what you would normally watch a Republican National Convention and see featured as rising stars. By all accounts, Nikki Haley is going to be a name you will hear a lot from my mouth as we move toward the 2024 election. Former UN ambassador, former governor of South Carolina, has seemingly been able to bridge the establishment wing of the Republican Party and the Trump train MAGA, 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 no breaks, woo, woo. I thought she had a great speech. I thought she was, uh, uh, her energy brought what I would imagine to be on-the-fence Republicans that might have been even a little startled with Kimberly Guilfoyle screaming and saying, oh, that's what I remember. Yeah, no, I like that. I like that. And if that likes Trump, then maybe um, I'm on the side of it. Double for Tim Scott. Tim Scott is uh, also a rising star. Uh, I think that he is, uh, you know, he really got his moment in the sun trying to push the Republican side of the police reform bill. He dinged the Democrats for that, although didn't really spend a ton of time with it. But he's the only black Republican in the Senate. And I think he acquitted himself very well. If I were to compare it to the Democrats night one, I would say it's more cohesive. Because while the tones of Kimberly Guilfoyle, Donald Trump Jr., Nikki Haley, and Tim Scott were uh, certainly on different ends of the decibel scale, if you get them all in a room, as a friend wisely described to me, they would probably be able to agree on stuff. Compared to the Democrats, where if you got John Kasich, Bernie Sanders, and Michelle Obama in a room and barred them from talking about whether or not Donald Trump should be in office, I don't know exactly how much of a platform those three ideologies would be able to put together. The second night was a little bit less chaotic. 
You got some more red meat, anti-abortion activist and former Planned Parenthood employee Abby Johnson gave a speech that was graphic in terms of her description of the abortion she participated in that made her quit her job and become an anti-abortion advocate. But you also got our first glimpse into some of the reality television show panache that I'm sure was a major factor in the planning for the RNC as soon as it was discovered that this was not going to be a physical convention. Two moments in particular. Donald Trump pardoned a man. (laughs) Pardoned a man on television last night. Now they went through his entire story. It It feels like a very inoffensive pardon. This is a man who has long since been out of jail, has spent his life uh, uh, dedicated to helping people get out of jail and stay out of trouble. But boy, did they get that reality TV moment where they made sure that the guy getting pardoned didn't know he was getting pardoned and then zoom that camera right into his face to see every inch of the emotion. We also saw Donald Trump naturalize citizens or participate in a naturalization ceremony so he might show exactly how big of a heart he has for legal immigration. In fact, there's been a lot of image rehabilitation for Donald Trump, and that again ties into the question everything the media has ever told you narrative. This hammered home with a segment featuring Nick Sandman, a.k.a. the Covington Catholic teen who was wearing a MAGA hat while a, uh, a older Native American man banged a drum in his face. This became a, a massive story for about 48 hours. It was later revealed that the Catholic teens were not menacing a peaceful protester. The old man had gone over there to demonstrate in front of the kids. And Nick Sandman wound up winning a lawsuit against CNN and and the Washington Post for the way they covered that. Well, not winning a lawsuit. They settled. Washington Post and CNN settled a lawsuit. But those two places do not settle that lawsuit unless they are, are, are afraid they are going to lose. And both the monetary payment and the shame of losing a lawsuit like that is, is too much to bear, so you settle. And then, of course, we got to our headliners. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo speaking from a location in Jerusalem, touting the deal that the White House has made, or helped broker, rather, between Israel and the United Arab Emirates. And then Melania Trump speaking in the Rose Garden. Combine that with the pardon and the naturalization, and some folks today are complaining about Hatch Act violations, the use of our actual government for political purposes. I don't know exactly how much traction that's going to get, but it's something people are talking about. But not as much as I'm going to talk about something else I have noticed throughout this Republican National Convention, and that is... One very 
curious, at least in terms of my viewership of RNCs in the past, focus on a single demographic. Guys, I think Donald Trump is making the biggest play to win the black vote that I have ever seen from a Republican candidate ever. So let's break down these numbers real quick. According to a Pew Research uh, breakdown of the 2016 vote, uh, the black vote was 10% of the electorate. 91% of it went to Hillary Clinton. Of that, she got black women by 98% and black men 81% to Trump's 14. The share of black votership declined by 7% from 2012 when Barack Obama was on the ballot. Now, I want to make something intensely clear here, specifically in this summer and and the issues that not only we have had with George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, uh, and others, but also what's happening right now in Wisconsin. Considering the heartbreak, rage, and tragedy we have seen, I'm not going to speak loosely about the wants and desires of black America. They've had enough words put in their mouths and moments co-opted by others regardless of their intent. So I'm going to be very clear when I'm talking about the X's and O's of politics, identification of demographics, understanding historic voting habits, modern motivations, and development of a get-out-the-vote strategy. And when you look at all that, it's very, very clear. The black vote from the Republican perspective is and has been a blowout. So when you're thinking about how you're going to cater to that demographic with the limited resources that you have to build your coalition, aside from a visit to the Urban League and an attaboy from Thomas Sowell, there has not really been much movement from Republicans to reverse that trend because, quite frankly, it seems irreversible. And yet, this has been the RNC through two nights. I know what racism feels like, mm. but I also know that but for my being in this country, I would have never been able to achieve um, the things that I have been able to achieve. The Democratic Party does not want black people to leave their mental plantation. And yet the Democrats still assume that black people will vote for them, no matter how much they let us down and take us for granted. We're sick of it. We're not going to take it anymore. The days of blindly supporting the Democrats are coming to an end. Joe Biden said if a black man didn't vote for him, he wasn't truly black. Joe Biden said black people are a monolithic community. It was Joe Biden who said poor kids can be just as smart as white kids. My name is Daniel Cameron. I'm 34 years old and the first African-American attorney general in Kentucky history. It is an honor to be with you as a proud Republican and supporter of Donald J. Trump. Not so long ago, my life was running from the police, fearing the police and avoiding the police. Not because of anything that the police had done to me personally, but due to the animosity I had allowed to grow inside of me, making me believe that they were my enemy. But today, praise God, I am filled with hope. It hurt my soul to hear the terrible name that people called Donald. The worst one is racist. I take it as a personal insult that people would think I've had a 37-year friendship with a racist. 
At the heart of all of these are two things. Number one, the arrogance of the Democratic Party that they would be unable to bring uh, black people forward uh, while benefiting from their unquestioned support. And things that Donald Trump has done up to and including opportunity zones, criminal justice reform, the funding of historically black colleges and universities, as well as benefits of the basic populist rhetoric rhetoric of Donald Trump, jobs, economy, safety, elected officials, regular Americans, heartwarming stories. There is more focused on the black American experience in this RNC than I can ever remember. But the question becomes politically, to what end? In all likelihood, Joe Biden is going to win the black vote by an overwhelming majority this November. So for Trump, what represents a victory? And what is leading Trump to push so hard on this? I've got a few guesses. Here's the most surface level. Trump doesn't like being called a racist. In fact, a purely cynical perspective might be to say that all movement by the Trump administration toward causes that would benefit the black community up to and including criminal justice and funding historically black colleges and universities is another way to trigger the libs. Like an, oh yeah, well, how can I be racist now kind of way. Legislative performance of I've got a black friend in the highest order. That is cynical. Well, I mean, so you can you can think that. I think it is a bit reductionist. Here's another theory. Trump and the black community in America have had a long and complicated relationship. Trump not only became a cultural icon amongst new money wealth, which is something celebrated in all of pop culture, and hip-hop certainly is among it, but a 538 breakdown of Trump references in pre-presidential run music was 60% positive. And then came The Apprentice, a mainstream rating smash that not only made black players like Omarosa a star but then branched out into Celebrity Apprentice, where black stars from the arts, athletics, and otherwise could theatrically achieve and outsmart white counterparts without having to rap, sing, dance, or play ball. According to the book Devil's Bargain about Trump's relationship with Steve Bannon, Donald Trump was more popular with black and Hispanic viewers than he was with white viewers. And then came the birth certificate. In just a few short weeks, Donald Trump's stance on where President Obama was born has, well, evolved. From this... The reason I have a little doubt, just a little, just a little, it's because he grew up and nobody knew him. To this... I want him to show his birth certificate. To this. I'm saying it's a real possibility, much greater than I thought two or three weeks ago, Then he has pulled one of the great cons in the history of politics and beyond politics. Of course, this elevates his stature amongst conservatives, rabid to draw any kind of blood for Obama, racists among them, and tanks his favorability ratings with black Americans who are rather enjoying seeing a black man run the country. 
But that was nearly a decade ago. In the intervening years, we've seen declining enthusiasm for Hillary Clinton. And yes, now the Democrats are running Joe Biden, a holdover from the Obama years. And he was rescued by the black vote in South Carolina. And he's also made racial gaffes in the past and during this campaign and has a legislative record that very much can and has been attacked by both Democrats and Republicans on racial issues, specifically the crime bill. We've also, in the intervening nine years, seen a major black star support the president as part of his brand. You know, they tried to scare me to not wear this hat, my own friends. But this hat, it gives me, it gives me power in a way. Granted, Kanye's brand at that moment was also simultaneously adding bipolar disorder, but still, considering we haven't seen a ton of black stars come out and voice unfettered support for a Republican president, it counts. Add that to the rise of young black conservative voices like Candace Owens, who have branded the concept of blacksitting, a black exit from democratic circles. So here's the question. Does any of this mean anything? Will criminal justice reform be able to peel off any black votes in November? Will that erode Biden's support in cool blue city centers of swing states? Well, this is a quote from Chuck Todd last night. There is another focus showcasing what President Trump has done on criminal justice reform. He continued, you know, both campaigns tell me that there is a chance Donald Trump could overperform with African-American men. It's a concern for the Biden campaign and a focus for the Trump campaign. Well, I'll tell you what, the Trump campaign better hope that they do. If not, there will be a lot of second guessing on exactly how much time and focus was spent on catering to a vote that historically was never going to budge. Guys, I have never worked harder in my life for a better boss. That's you. If you're listening, it doesn't matter if you support monetarily. If you're listening, you're supporting. If you're spreading the word, you're supporting. If you are leaving a review on the podcast, on any of the podcast platforms, you are supporting. And... I'm, I'm cranking, baby. We are firing on all cylinders. Tonight, I am back on the PX3 live stream. We are doing night three of the Republican National Convention. Mike Pence, Mr. Electricity, the icon, the main event. <laughs> or whatever as close as he's going to get. He is going to speak uh, tonight, tomorrow, uh, it's uh, Big Chungus himself, Donald J. Trump, the President of the United States, 45th of that title. He caps off the Republican National Convention. Of course, you can get my opinions 
on Pence's speech. If you are a member of our $3 club at takepoliticsseriously.com, because you're going to get another podcast tomorrow. You already got one on Monday. You get four podcasts a week for $3. That is a bargain, baby. Just head on over to takepoliticsseriously.com. And of course, you get my written thoughts each and every weekday for free. Free political newsletter at freepoliticalnewsletter.com. Sign on up. Any way that you want to support this show, you know that I love it. You know I love working for you guys. We are, uh, we are, we are taking this to the next level, and this is just the beginning for the record because we are going all out for the debates. We're going all out for election night. Mm, I can't wait. Thank you guys for making it possible. TakePoliticsSeriously.com Our guest today is here to talk about economic thinking and how much it has totally taken over so much of our lives, of our parties, of our culture. Her name is Elizabeth Berman. She is an associate professor of organizational studies at the University of Michigan, and you can find her book, Thinking Like an Economist, How Economics Became the Language of the U.S. Public Policy, which will be published by Princeton University Press. Let's welcome her now. Welcome to the show, Elizabeth. It's great to be here with you today. All right. Economics, obviously something that is on the forefront of people's minds, especially in an election year, right? The old adage, it's the economy, stupid. But it seems like economics has become more, and specifically in your book, there the, the, the central idea is that we have used it to describe much more than just the way that jobs and money and everything we normally think about the economy works. Uh, uh, can you give us just an overlay? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's been sort of this this long history for, you know, half a century, at least more than that, of, of thinking of um, you know, what we might think of macroeconomic factors in terms of economics and economic language. So thinking about GDP or, or economic growth. Um, but what I'm interested in and what I'm looking at is how there was really the spread of uh, what I'm calling a microeconomic style of reasoning that really took off in, in, in policymaking in the 1970s and has shaped uh, politics ever since then. And so that's you know, kind of an economic 101 style of thinking about policy questions. So thinking in terms of efficiency, in terms of trade-offs, in terms of weighing costs and benefits. And the, that has affected a lot of policy domains, not just these obviously economic ones, but also areas like like social policy, like healthcare policy, education policy that we might not immediately think of as being economic in quite the same way. Where do you think was there an inflection point uh, when this starts? Like you said, it, in, in the seventies, is there a a moment where all of a sudden this idea kind of catches on and goes mainstream? Yeah, I mean, my my story really starts in the in the mid 1960s, and okay. uh, a big chunk of it, interestingly, kind of comes out of the Lyndon Johnson era and the Great Society. And so you have, on the one hand, you have this rise of the ambition of what government is going to do, right? So you you have people saying that we're going to use government to you know, to end poverty, to solve social problems, um, to uh, protect the environment, all kinds of new things that it historically hadn't been 
tasked with, at least to that extent. And so, and so you kind of have this expansion. And then the rise of economics is in some way um, a little bit of a, of a backlash to that in the sense that it is, it is kind of saying, okay, well, if we're going to try to do these things, we need to sort of try to figure out how to rationalize it at least, how to do it a little more efficiently, how to be cost effective. And so, and so it's really kind of starting in the mid-60s that you see it take off. Um, but you can really see it across both Democratic and Republican administrations, you know, during the, the Nixon years, the Ford years, the Carter years, and uh, all the way up to, to Reagan. So the Great Society, uh, obviously, in, in the 60s, the, uh, you know, the concept of mass media is a little bit closer to where we are now, uh, minus the Internet, obviously, than it would be to, let's say, FDR rolling out uh, all mm-hmm. of his large governmental programs that were previous to LBJ or during LBJ's time in the Senate, the bane of uh, a, a small government uh, politicians in both parties. Why do you think it didn't happen before that? Like, what, what is the reason why it happens with LBJ and not FDR? Well, I think there, uh, one of the big things is that you really start to have um, a consolidation in the discipline of economics, and this is happening as early as, as the 1950s, around sort of new techniques and new, more mathematical methods um, that sort of provide this this technical basis for thinking about those kinds of problems. And so, and so there really is this way in which you've got you know ideas that are coming out of an academic space that are are you know they're not transforming politics in the sense of you know economists are going in and they're giving advice and everybody's just listening to them. But they're able to sort of develop these new ways of thinking about these kinds of problems that ultimately then um, that reshape how, how policymakers think about the kinds of problems that they have and how to solve them. I'm, I'm fascinated by, uh, uh, you know, LBJ, that, that particular time period and, and some of the divisions that are happening in both parties, really, where both parties start to, to become a little bit more ideologically uh, identified with uh, uh, values and stuff like that. Certainly, the Republican Party begins to become more identified with uh, what. Uh, and, and and correct me if I'm wrong here. Some of the like, yeah, mm-hmm. but what will it cost, and how do we do it? And therefore, if it is wasteful, then we will ridicule that as an example of not doing it right. Uh, is that part of what you're talking about? Some of those sort of arguments. Yeah, well, I mean, one of the really interesting things to me is that um, that you see economic reasoning kind of coming out of uh, kind of like a center-left sort of technocratic space originally, right? That it's mm. not so much people coming in and making arguments about small government and free markets. It's more people coming in and saying, "Hey, let's try to you know let's try to do these government things more efficiently, more more cost effectively." But at the same time, that also conflicts with a lot of what had been those traditional democratic values in the you know, great society or, or even going back to the New Deal, which are really about kind of making these claims based on based on arguments about rights, about about universalism. And so introducing economic reasoning to that uh, at the same time does tend to have this um, this effect of saying, OK, well, maybe we should rein that back in a little bit. And so there's this way that even though economic reasoning was coming out of this relatively centrist space, it kind of was somewhat constraining for people who wanted to make these left arguments about government trying to do these big, ambitious things. And I think one of the things that's interesting is that um, that on the right, you know, you do see people making these kinds of economic arguments. But I do think that, that Republicans, um, certainly starting with the, the Reagan administration and, and continuing after that, have kind of been better at – um, saying, okay, these are our values. You know, we, we, we think small government is a value because 
you know, that's just sort of an underlying philosophical commitment. And so, you know, if, if economic arguments are kind of going to support that, that's great. We'll, we'll buy onto it. But really what it, we're prioritizing is the underlying values and not the question of like, are we going to do this most efficiently or not? This is fascinating because I, I, I really, really love, I, I've always wondered why there hasn't been more of a lane for the, 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 the center left technocrat that you just described of, Hey, we love these big gigantic programs. However, mm-hmm. let's optimize them. We, we seem to be, especially right. in 2020, to be in a world where everything wants to be, everything needs to be optimized. We need to move fast and break things. We need to make sure that we are getting the most out of it and we'll be rewarded if we can. And these programs, specifically when they are tied to these high-minded ideals and these better angels of our nature that will make us uh, a, a more whole society, it seems like they would be the biggest places where we should optimize and make sure that no amount of money that is coming to the most needy gets lost somewhere in the piping. And yet it, it hasn't really happened. So I guess my question for you is, are big idea politics just always and forever going to be the natural enemy of this line of thought? Well, you know, I see there as being this sort of, um, you know, I think, I think that 2016 was really a moment of, of, of change on this and not just for the uh, Republican Party, but for, for Democrats as well. But I think, you know, during the period of, of, of the Clinton years, during the Obama years, you know, uh, you have a pretty strong technocratic discourse that is sort of saying, OK, we're going to try to, you know, we want to move the needle on health care, but we're really interested in trying to you know, think about how are we going to. Um, increased choice and competition, and how are we going to set up a market that's going to increase the, the efficiency of all this? And so that technocratic discourse is pretty strong through that whole period. But what's interesting, um, you know, I guess starting as early as, as 2011 or so, but really kind of intensifying after 2016, is you do see this uh, resurgence uh, on the left of people who are making these sorts of bigger arguments that aren't necessarily grounded in economic reasoning, that aren't about, oh, let's do this as efficiently as possible, that are really about, you know, healthcare is a right. You've got a right to higher yeah. education. We should we should make this free and we should sort of step back from that kind of efficiency logic that had been much more prominent and, you know, and it's still certainly there, but that really had been the dominant way of talking about these issues up until that point. You know, it, it's it's funny as we talk about it, uh, you know, certainly Donald Trump would not be any would be anybody's idea of a small government <laughs> Republican. Uh, but but even he does employ kind of you know call and responses to his crowds back when we were able to have crowds uh, of right. like you know uh, 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 under budget uh, uh, before deadline or whatever. Like there was this idea that. Yes, he was going to spend more money and he was going to spend, but he was going to spend money on the right things and he was going to do it more efficiently because he's a a businessman. Uh, so I guess my question to that is, is this line of thought partially the germ that leads us to the idea of we need an outsider, we need somebody who does private business to come in and understand how our Byzantine government works so we can get more out of it? Well, I think I would make a distinction between this sort of um, this sort of top level use of economic arguments that, you know, you can see pretty much across all politicians and that are really about, you know, people just making claims that they're going to be able to do things that are going to have 
um, you know, that are going to be better for the economy in some broad way. You know, it's sort of very, at the broadest level, everybody is some kind of language of economics and sort of seeing that as being central to policy. But I think what's interesting with, with uh, the Trump administration is that at the same time, I think you really see um, a disconnect between the sort of technocratic discourse that I'm talking about uh, and and the kinds of policy arguments that he's making. So, yeah, I think you saw a little bit of this. Um, if you go back to the Reagan administration, that you mm-hmm. can see examples where you know, Reagan made Reagan made arguments about, uh, for example, about the laffer curve. You know, and we're gonna um, we can we can try to uh, cut taxes, and that's going to raise revenues, which were arguments that were pretty much um, you know panned by economists who kind of, kind of across the political spectrum, but were still very effective political arguments. And I think in the Trump administration, you see that to an even greater extent where there's this disjuncture between the kinds of claims um, that uh, that Trump is willing to make, even his economic claims, and uh, again, what is sort of a fairly uh, bipartisan um, set of positions within the economics discipline itself. And maybe one example of that is to just think about something like tariffs, where there's been this, you know, for decades, there's been this bipartisan consensus among economists that tariffs are bad and Trump comes in and says that that no tariffs are good, they're gonna protect us in this new way and uh you know and and, and um economic expertise is just kind of being cut out of that discourse entirely. Yeah. Where does a politician like Ross Perot fall into this argument? Because he certainly had the theatricality that captured attention and yet when you watch his uh and I would encourage anybody to watch it just for entertainment purposes, his, his half-hour <laughs> infomercials, they were almost entirely about these charts and graphs, technocratic arguments on what uh, the best way to optimize the government should be. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, Perot is a really, a really interesting example because, uh, you know, I think you're right that he was somebody who was much more, um, you know, he was, he was a character of his own. He was not just sort of... Uh, taking advice from the establishment. And so he was um, coming up with his own economic plans. But again, I think he's sort of another example of a place of, of, of how you can be making these sorts of um, arguments about uh, business experience being good or, you know, that I've got the, uh, the tax plan that's going to somehow rejuvenate the entire economy, um, but still have them be fairly detached from that sort of uh, kind of consensus space within the world of, of policy of, you know, people who have economic degrees, people who maybe have like a master's in public policy, who uh, who would, would go in and, and question some of those claims. And so I think, you know, I think I think a lot of the ways that economic, um, the economic style of reasoning that I'm talking about ends up being important is because you get a lot of people in Washington who are not necessarily the people who are, you know, the really politically people the really political people, but people who are maybe, you know, they work for an organization like the, the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, or they're, yeah. you know, they're buried in some, in some, you know, uh, office in the, in the Department of Labor. And those are the kinds of people who are shaping how we all think and talk about these issues, but who aren't getting the, the, the top line headlines and who aren't the ones necessarily um, putting those, those, those flashy proposals out there. Is there a cost to this kind of thinking? Is there is there a, a downside where we're over-focusing on it uh, does us harm? I mean, I do think that there is um, a tension between the extent to which you're going to make economic values um, central and, the, and, and 
the extent to which um, you've necessarily got to prioritize things, right? And so if you're going to say that what we're really looking for, what we really care about is making things as efficient as possible, then that implies that maybe um, maybe there's some other values that we are, are not going to take seriously. And I think I think the example of making claims that are, are based on rights, again, which is something that, um, you know, is historically associated with the Democratic Party and the expansion of, of um, you know, of, of civil rights, of rights to, uh, you know, the idea of a right to health care, of, uh, you know, at one point there was a discourse about welfare rights, that, um, you know, if you're making those kinds of claims, you're saying that we should just do this for everybody because it's the right thing to do, and um, regardless of what the cost is. And, you know, there's no question that that is typically going to come into conflict with trying to think about it in terms of which solution is the most efficient. But if you are really centered on thinking about efficiency as being the thing that is first and foremost um, your, your, your sort of central policy goal, uh, you also kind of lose some of your moral power for making those sorts of claims. So, you know, there's something very compelling about saying, you know, we have a right to health care and we should just have universal health care. Uh, that sort of saying that, you know, we're going to have some very complicated system in which there's some kind of cost sharing and means testing and benefits phase out at this level doesn't quite have the same moral appeal. And so I think that's when you really see the conflict play out. A lot of times, even with big issues, uh, you you have a, a very slow burn, right? Even even gigantic economic mm -hmm. issues like free trade and NAFTA and the WTO and stuff like that. It often takes decades before the, the public sort of forms an opinion on decisions that were made decades prior. We don't have one of those situations on our hands right now with the pandemic because it is mm -hmm. obviously in our face at all times. We see real-time results, and often uh, they are ugly for us to look at. We have uh, vexing problems like schools and the economy and, and local businesses, small businesses. How has this kind of thinking affected not only the Trump administration's decisions, but our understanding of the Trump administration's decision? Well, I think it's been really interesting to watch this play out and particularly to watch it play out in the U.S. in a way that I think it has different that's been different than it has in a lot of countries um, where we've really set up this, at least in kind of popular discourse, this this contrast between health and the economy. Right. That we've sort of got this trade off between we can either, um, you know, we can either uh, keep ourselves shut up and protect our health, but at the cost of the economy or we can open things back up. Uh, and, and, you know, protect the economy as much as we can, but it's going to cost it's going to cost a certain number of lives. And so a lot of the debate about how much to reopen or how reopen to be has sort of been organized around that dichotomy. But I really think what you end up seeing is that uh, is that even though that's a very economic kind of way of framing the problem, um, economists are effectively, you know, have been pretty consensual. And again, this is something that you can see. There's been surveys, uh, people who are kind of across the political spectrum of saying, look, yes, there's going to be a huge cost to shutting down the economy in the short run. But if you can just do it enough to get it under control, that's the only way you're going to be able to save things in the long run. And so, again, I think this is another example how today and, and increasingly you have this kind of gap between the way that the big problem is, is framed as this health economy trade-off in the, the, the broad um, political conversation and, you know, something that seems to be pretty consensual within economics that 
that, you know, you need to kind of protect health first in order to be able to then open up the economy. And so, you know, so the best you can do is essentially have this short-term shutdown and then, uh, and then, you know, after that, you sort of, you sort of get back to trying to rebuild and sort of, you know, grow your way out of recession. Through the sixties to now, how much more is, are, are both politicians willing to kind of engage in some of these statistical arguments compared to where we are now? Like, ha- have we seen more of a, uh, uh, more, more of the language of economics kind of being, being used uh, in, in a way that we didn't see prior to the sixties? I do think there's a way in which a lot of our, just broad justifications for why we are involved in certain policy areas have become more economic. And so if you think about, um, if you think about something like uh, uh, education policy, for example, um, that, you know, there really is a shift that you can see that's kind of, again, starting in the the late seventies, maybe, but really kind of continuing to pick up through the nineties and two thousands of um, you know framing that that you know the reason that we the reason that we support education is because it's an investment in human capital right people are going to um, get an education and then that's going to help them increase their wages in the long run um, plus on top of that it's going to be good for economic growth which is a very much an economic argument for why we support it and of course people supported education for for a whole variety of other reasons before they had that kind of language to talk about it. Um, you know, people people understood that, you know, you needed training in order to be able to do different kinds of things and that it might be good for the country to have a population that was, was literate and was numerate. So it's not like people didn't have arguments to make those same kinds of claims, but you can definitely see this um, rise of economic language as being the justification for why you do that. You know, the flip side of it is it makes it a little bit hard to make other kinds of arguments about why you should support education, for example. So yeah. if you think about... Um, if you think about, uh, uh, you know, the value of higher education, just to, just to take an example, um, well, if, if the sole measure of it is what your income is going to be 10 years after college, then that kind of limits you to saying that, that there's a relatively limited set of things that are going to be worth it. And maybe, maybe, maybe other areas aren't. So maybe we're just going to focus entirely on, um, on the STEM fields and engineering. And, you know, that's kind of what, what's worth investing in. And we don't necessarily think the other stuff has any benefits because it doesn't have that kind of direct connection to salary. Yeah. You know, I, I, I almost wonder even just on the baseline understanding of like numbers, I've been listening to or doing mm-hmm. some research on, on the mid sixties and, and uh, uh, LBJ becomes obsessed with being able to position the Vietnam war based on numbers of casualties and, and picking numbers, right. cherry picking numbers, that are small because he has a very keen political instinct that like, oh, well, if somebody hears that number, then they're going to think, oh, well, you know, X amount of people die. That's fine. If it gets beyond this number, then I'm in political trouble. And I almost wonder whether or not that is rooted in, in some of this, that as we are talking about kind of good numbers and bad numbers and how we feel about it, it kind of goes beyond the actual use of, of measurement and, and becomes more just a another way that we can feel secure in our in our gut feelings. 
Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely the case. And I think it's a it's a pattern that kind of extends beyond just economic arguments to this idea that um, if we can just figure out how to measure and count things and we can make the world predictable, then we can, you know, then we're somehow all going to be better off. And so, yeah. you know, so there's been this explosion of numbers and trying to think about things, you know, trying to think about the evidence-based policy and, and you know, trying to figure out how we can predict what the effects of particular decisions are going to be so that, that we can have a little more certainty. And, um, you know, not that there's not value in, in doing all that kind of stuff, but it is always limited, right? The world is unpredictable. A year ago, nobody would have uh, expected us to be where we are right now. And so, and so, you know, so there's always limits on how much of that stability and rationality we can introduce to the world. But, you know, the larger our capacity becomes for, producing those numbers for, you know, having huge quantities of statistics, of data, of analysis, uh, you know, that, that, that temptation to turn to that to provide all the solutions is uh, is always there. And it's just, you know, um, it's, uh, it's, it's got its value, but it's also <laughs> always got this limit. It's never going to quite live up to that dream. I totally agree. And, and it's one of those things now that as we are, we have never been more quantifiable than we are now. In, in every respect, oh, yeah. like in terms, especially since so much runs through the Internet, through, you know, I have a, a watch on my wrist that that quantifies <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, my own health. Uh, it then feeds into a supercomputer on in my pocket that that goes to a server that can run various algorithms to tell me various different things. And yet when you mix those kinds of numbers with what will always be an emotional game in politics, I can't help but think this is just an awful combination. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I think absolutely. And I think, you know, what ends up happening is that we take this, is that, um, you know, you sort of find this yourself in this place where people are using this uh, kind of superficial veneer of numbers and data analysis to justify whatever it was that they wanted for deeper, you know, emotional or, or, you know, their, their, for underlying values, but, but things that they wanted anyway, you know, everybody kind of cherry picks the numbers that are going to support the thing that they already kind of liked. And so, uh, you know, is, 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 do we get a little bit better at making those decisions as we have more numbers and more data? Maybe, but it's not that clear to me that, uh, that having the numbers, having the data is really that, that, impactful in terms of changing the kinds of decisions that we actually make. All right. So now that we've laid out this doomsday scenario and uh, understanding our own <laughs> dystopia, let me ask you, as you were the expert who literally wrote the book, if there is anything to take away for the listeners on how to better understand some of these arguments, any just little uh, basic guidelines uh, to understand these arguments better, uh, what would they be? I think one thing that I would I would I would try to consider is um, is uh, remembering that economic arguments are important, but they're not the only kinds of economic or they're not the only kinds of arguments that are important. And so, you know, so often we see some kind of top line figure like uh, you know, claims about something is going to increase GDP by a certain amount or uh, you know produce some kind of economic growth, and and you really have to stop and think, okay, but 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 what does that actually mean? Well. You know, you can increase your GDP, and that can be something that's broadly distributed and benefits everybody, or it can be something that's just going to a very small fraction of people. Or perhaps, you know, some people are doing better and other people are doing worse. And so I think there's this, there's this way in which uh, this discourse of economics is very authoritative, 
Um, but it's always worth sort of stopping and trying to unpack those assumptions a little bit. Um, you know, and I also think it is worth uh, recognizing that uh, although economics as a discipline is really good at portraying itself in this sort of neutral technocratic way as being kind of, um, you know, relatively scientific as, as being, being data driven, that, that, you know, economic reasoning is still grounded in certain values. And so if, if you are making policy decisions because you think efficient policy is what the best policy is, you know, that might be a value that's worth pursuing, but it's worth recognizing that that is one value and that there may be some situations in which we have other, other kinds of priorities that we're willing to put above that. I'll tell you what, good, good, good advice from our guest, Elizabeth Pop Berman. She is an associate professor of organizational studies at the University of Michigan. Look out for her new book, Thinking Like an Economist, How Economics Became the Language of U.S. Public Policy. It will be published by Princeton University Press. Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's great to be with you today. And that wraps it up for us today. I want to again thank our guest, Elizabeth. I want to thank everybody who supports us at TakePoliticsSeriously.com, including our Titanic $10 tier, Modesto Zone, Logan, Cisco, NH, Plumpkin, Chad, Headphones, Neil, Water Ice, Scope, MacBook Pro, Dallas Danger, Taylor, Middle-Aged, Mike, DTNS, Hack 5, Brad, Utah, Jimmy, Montana, Frozen, Summer, Zack and Cheese, Captain Bunzo, Zombie, Doc, Berkeley, Steven, your boy, Craig, TroubleFilm.com, Robert, Mr. Tallyman, D-Laser, I Poop My Pants, Just Another Pilot, Alex, Mitchell, Severio, Martin, Alec, Government, uh, Unfiltered, Jerry, Andres, Archie, Jay Milius, The Jen, The Crap in My Pants, Olin and Angela, D-L, uh, I poop my pants.com, Miranda Janelle, Jenny Colby, Robert Ward, Glenn Wolf Brand, Chili Scoop, Richard Pierce, Jim, J Pink, and Andrew Maine. You want to get your name up there? You support us at takepoliticsseriously.com. You want to watch me live commentate the last two nights of the Republican National Convention? Yeah, head on over to twitch.tv slash Justin R. Young. You want to follow me? On all of my social media platforms, it is at Justin R. Young. And of course, uh, if you want to email the show, theyoungamerican at gmail.com, we will have our mailbag on Friday's episode, as usual, where we will wrap up the RNC. Hopefully, I have a guest to uh, talk about that. And uh, yeah, freepoliticalnewsletter.com pretty much it guys until next time this is your old pal justin robert young saying some shows talk about politics others talk about politics and still more they're talking about politics but this this my friends is the only show that talks about all Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>